0: All right, I think we're on now. All right, so as I already alluded to at last hour, we're going to finish up uh, with some concluding remarks on our class on how we got the Bible, and don't know how long this is going to take, but, um, you know, as we looked at all that information uh, that has been presented, uh, when we Think about the New Testament manuscript. There's there's over 5,300 New Testament manuscripts, all right? So this is in addition to those same three, those main three that we've been talking about over and over again in this class. Uh, We think about the fragments of the New Testament, the Old Testament that we have. We have tens of thousands of fragments, pieces of the scriptures, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they themselves over twenty five thousand fragments of mostly Old Testament scriptures. We have multiple versions of the scriptures throughout time, not just the what the the Hebrews had and what not just what the not just what one particular group of Christians had, but multiple versions. We had the Samaritan Pentateuch, we have Syriac versions of the Old Testament. Same thing with the New Testament. We have the Greek, we have Syriac versions, we have Coptic versions. And all of those line up very similar. And what we see is there was a similar message, regardless of who translated those of those versions of the scriptures and we also see where secular history attests to the books of the bible uh there's been people that wrote about them that, that have mentioned them uh we have you know again tying this back into the the, the fragments that we have archaeology that attests to the books of the bible and attests to the events of, uh, that are described in the in the bible you know a lot of times you'll see where. There's dispute on whether certain towns or certain events happen. And then over time, archaeologists find, well, this town actually did exist or this event actually did happen. And it tests, to all of the scriptures uh, that we find. And so, you know, thinking about, and I got this picture. Y- y'all may not can see it on the bottom. Uh I was hoping it wouldn't uh, mess with any of our texts. But uh, you'll see those individuals, they're in black and white, but they're the main characters in the show, Dragnet. And uh, there's a famous phrase there in which the the guy, I believe it was Joe Friday, would always just say, just the facts, okay? And so when you think about the Bible and think about just the facts of that, a lot of times when you see individuals uh, or talk with individuals, this topic... They will say, well, the original text, the original Greek, I believe was inspired, but it has been corrupted throughout time. And, okay, I I understand that point, but when you get down to the nitty gritty, it really doesn't hold a lot of water. Uh, If you're going to attack the legitimacy of the words that we have today, you have to go back and, and attack the legitimacy of the very beginning. Uh, you have to go and say, "Well, none of this. Jesus never existed. These end, these apostles never existed. That it was wrong from the very beginning." Because what we'll see is that the textual criticism of the Bible throughout time is like un- anything else in history. There's just nothing. There's not been. There's no other book in history in which uh, the amount of time, the amount of evidence uh, that we have to build a case that what we have today is the same as what they were reading a thousand years ago and the same as what they were reading two thousand years ago now i'm not saying that over time somebody has misspelled a word or maybe maybe there's maybe been some changes in grammar this is not what i'm talking about i'm talking about the same message that those individuals two thousand years ago read is the same message that we have today and if you would still argue, well, it's been corrupted throughout time, or what we have today can't be trusted, I would ask the question as to how much more evidence uh, do we need that we have a consistent and accurate text? How much more do you need? If if you were going to if you were going to go to court and you were going to convict, you know, convict the scriptures of being legitimate, so to speak, what else would you need? You know, how many documents are needed to back up the accuracy of any other book? We have thousands, tens of thousands of documents that back up the accuracy of this book. What about any other book in history? Man, I don't, mean, that's simply just not the case. You don't have that type of evidence for any other book throughout history. How many documents throughout time, so not just that are from the same time period, but also that have documents that are throughout time that back up the legitimacy of that book were there you know somebody wrote a book in 500 a.d did somebody reference it in 600 a.d or did they reference it in 700 a.d right but we do see that with the scriptures there that people reference those scriptures throughout time they mention them if if you think about the individuals like Irenaeus Origen you know Justin Martyr Clement um, Eusebius, all those individuals that recognize those scriptures and are referencing them as being readily available and uh, legitimate. And also, how many witnesses do we need to verify, to, to verify that somebody existed? How many, many people do we need to talk about, uh, well, Jesus did so-and-so, or Paul did so-and-so? How many other witnesses do we need? And so, you know, again, the, the the question that we have to ask ourselves is, uh, you know, really, I think at the end of the day, is whether we want to believe it or not. I think that's what it boils down to. And there's two possibilities that we have uh, for the scriptures that we have today. You know, really, one of the possibilities is that the apostles and the men of that time were absolutely nuts. They were crazy. They were, I mean, just schizophrenic uh i mean they were completely crazy but yet they were able to pull off the greatest con job in the history of the world i mean these men you know hallucinated they believed all these things uh believed they were doing all these miracles and yet, the things that they wrote were consistent. They had the same story, and yet that story has stayed the same throughout thousands of years. All right, and that in and of itself would have been a miracle. Okay, just for them to be able to do that, or the other possibility that we, that we have is what they wrote is true. All right, and that's what it all boils down to. There's no uh, fence writing on this either. They were, you know, they again they set up just the greatest conspiracy of all time and were very successful, or what they're saying is actually true. All right, You can't go, I don't think it's legitimate to say, well, what they wrote at the beginning is true, but today it's not. All right, Because as we can see, it just doesn't hold a lot of weight when we look at all the evidence. And I think if Joe Friday was bringing up a case against the, the, the scriptures that we have today, I think we could very much build a case and say that, These scriptures are the same as 2,000 years ago. Uh, A quote by Sir Frederick Kenyon in Our Bible and Ancient Manuscripts, he says the number of manuscripts of the New Testament of early translations from it and the quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved to someone or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book of the world. And again, just like what we were saying, so many people have mentioned it. There's so many different translations that even the things that are, are doubtful You know, these things are preserved. Uh, These things can be verified. And again, no other book at that time period, no other book even today can line up to the amount of evidence that we have for uh, the Scriptures. Also, you know, one thing that I think when we get into these discussions about the Scriptures is outside of the legitimacy of it. And, you know, I think this kind of, uh, this idea kind of helps build the idea that um, that the scriptures were corrupted throughout time is that people, for whatever reason, think that there's just a gap between the first century and the King James Bible or maybe the, the third century and the King James Bible. Like, there was just <laughs> nothing, that the Catholics just held everything under lock and key until miraculously we, we got the King James Version. And that's simply not the case as well. Uh, as we have looked at in in class, we have all these different versions. Uh, outside of the original text, we have these old Latin versions that are mentioned. Although we don't have copies, there were old Latin versions around because the Vulgate was a revision of these old Latin texts. All right, so the old Latin would have been somewhere between the first and fourth century. The Vulgate would have been 4th century. We have these 7th and 8th century English translations. All right? And then we get to the Wycliffe version, Tyndale. All right? Which is an English translation from the Greek to the King James. All right? So we have this consistent consistency of the text being read and the text being translated to other languages. All right? And then we also have access to... Uh, the English, uh, the, the translations from uh, Greek to English as well. So this text has always been with us, and so it's not a legitimate case to bring forth that they were like, we just didn't have nothing until the King James, or it was just the Catholics telling us whatever until the King James, because we had these translations, and people were putting in the work of looking at these texts, making sure that these texts closely resembled uh, the original. So, you know, moving on from that, yet another argument that is made, uh, at least by certain individuals, is the idea that the Bible is a Catholic book, that the Catholics made the Bible. Uh, And on Catholic.com, it says, from the Gospels, as as historical documents, we learn that Christ founded the church. But the authority of the Gospels as inspired writing rests on the word of the Church. Okay, So they're saying the Church determined what was the inspired writing. The Catholic Church determined what was the inspired writing. Another quote from the Bible is a Catholic book. It says, It was the Catholic Church and no other which selected and listed the inspired books of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you can accept the Bible or any part of it as inspired Word of God, you can do so only because the Catholic Church says it is. Now that quote, I, I just think the audacity of that quote right there, I mean, just the boldness of, of believing that. Uh, man, I would never say anything like that. But notice what he says. He says, the Catholic Church selected and listed the inspired books of the Old Testament and New Testament. And again, if you believe that the Bible was inspired, it's because the Catholic Church says it is. And so we're going to look at some things and, and ask the question, is this really true? Uh, did these come about only because of the Catholic Church? And without the Catholic Church, uh, could we not determine what is inspired? And so what we'll see is that I think the Catholic Church did do a great service for us in preserving Uh, The text, we have a manuscript from them uh, that's of great use for us. And so we don't want to lighten that. But at the same time, did they basically, again, determine what was inspired and what was not inspired? So we're going to look at that. Uh, First Timothy 3 and verse 15, it says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so Catholics will look at this verse a lot and say, well, uh, the, because of this, saying that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, that they kind of determine what is truth. Uh, they are, in a sense, an arbiter of the truth. And so is the church an arbiter of the truth? Well, uh, The reality of this is if we look at John 16, verse 13, and, of course, in the context here, uh, Jesus is talking to the apostles. He says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And so what Jesus is telling the apostles is that there's going to come a time the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. And so we have Jesus. The Holy Spirit is coming. He's not speaking on his own authority. All right. So he's going to be giving the apostles words to speak that were given to him by Christ. And so, therefore, the message that the apostles are giving ultimately originates. with Christ, it doesn't originate in their mind. It originates uh, with Christ, and so the reality of this is whatever they, what the apostles speaking, they were not speaking their own opinions, their own choices. They were speaking the things of God, and so any decisions on the truth that they made ultimately came from a decision already made by God, and so. Uh, us today, when we are reading the scriptures, when we are looking at those things, say, okay, what do I need to do? What is the will of God? I'm not the determining what is truth. I'm just reading uh, what is truth, and then whatever God has said, I accept that. All right. So I'm just the receiver of that truth or the messenger of that truth. And so there's a distinct difference between that and being the one. That decides what the truth is, and I think what we see in First Timothy, First Timothy three, is just a total, uh, you know, m- uh, just misunderstanding of what that text is is saying. Is that those that are in the church, the individuals in the church, they have the truth, they know the truth, all right? But it is not saying that they are deciding what truth is. And when you, when, when you have that mindset, when you just decide uh, that, well, we're just going to do what we want to do, we may look to God's Word for advice, but at the end of the day, our decisions ultimately come from our own minds. This is what you get. You get a church that is of change and confusion. And this is just a list of the various doctrines throughout time for the Catholic Church, starting at... Two fifty seven A.D. and this would have been this would two fifty seven would not have been the actual formal Catholic Church. This would have been kind of a kind of the, the basically the infancy stage of the Catholic Church. And then we see all these different uh, different uh, doctrines being uh, developed throughout time. So we have what is that seventeen hundred years of changing doctrines or developing different doctrines, okay? And so, for example, we have 1545, basically that our traditions are equal to the Bible, all right? And so, again, you know, really what we've always been doing is, just, is okay, and it's just as legitimate as if God himself wrote it down in the Bible. Uh, 1870, we have the infallibility of the Pope as well. And so, you know, again... This is what happens when uh, you cast aside the Word of God, the will of God, for your own your own uh, ideas. Remember, the Scripture says that God is not the author of confusion. And you look at this, it's nothing but. You watch the news today, and it seems like our current Pope, just for whatever reason, is always in the news. And it just seems like... It's flip-flopping. Well he says different than what this Pope did 20 years ago and he's doing something different and it's just it's just chaos all the time things changing all the time. It's because there is no set standard. So again this is what happens uh, when you cast aside the Word of God. So going back to this question of is the Catholic or uh, is the Catholic is the Bible a Catholic book? I want to think about some questioning questions on determining uh, inspiration. You know, how can we determine if a writing is inspired? Um, let's look at 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21. 2 Peter 1. We're looking at uh, this question of what does inspired mean? Okay. And so... You know sometimes people will say if, if an artist is if, if an artist is fixing to to make some painting they will say well I just I just had an inspiration you know I I've just been inspired by the sunset so to speak and I'm going to make this painting but what we see in scriptures is that that's something totally different from the inspiration uh, that we see in the scriptures Verses 20 through 21 it says knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Notice that first verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So, what we can see also is that when when considering inspiration, uh, this is not something where God puts an idea in some man's head And he just does his best to describe it, all right? This is not the case because we see that man does no interpreting. There is no private interpretation. And so what God gives the man to speak or to write, that is he speaks and writes it exactly how God wants it to be spoken or or written. Get tongue-tied here. Okay, and so, you know, again, verse 21, prophecy never came by uh, the will of man. Man did not just make this up. When these individuals are considered inspired, we are saying that the things that they are writing, the things that they are saying are the things of God. Let's look at John 14, verse 26. John 14, verse 26, you know, again, uh, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. And so this, this inspiration is, is of a miraculous nature as well, as we would expect, that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to them all, to remembrance all the things that they have said to him, said to them. So the things that they forgot is going to be remembered, okay? Next part, can we prove uh, that someone is inspired? Or if I said that I was inspired, uh, could I prove it? Or is there a method as to how I could prove that I am inspired? Well, we see that in Hebrews 2 and verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. I think many of you know this passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Alright, so we have the salvation which was spoken by the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him, so that would be the apostles, all right. And then we see in verse four, God also bearing witness both with various both with signs, wonders, and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So it was confirmed, all right, but we see God bearing witness. And how did he bear witness to it? It was not him coming down and saying, Y'all better believe Peter. He bore witness through these miracles. He bore witness through these miraculous signs, all right? These gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so, if someone was inspired, they could prove it, all right? Because God would be on their side. God would confirm it through these miracles as well. Also, another thing that we can look at in determining if a writing inspired, is inspired is how do the apostles view a person's writing? Uh, in 2 Peter in verses three uh, through 15, 2 Peter three, verses fifteen through sixteen, uh, we see where Peter references Paul, and he says, "And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles." Speaking of them of of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Pay attention to that last bit of 16. As they do the rest of the Scriptures. And so we have Peter here saying that Paul's epistles are equal to Scriptures, which means that they are Scriptures. All right, And so, we see, again, Peter claiming the legitimacy of, of Paul. We also see in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18. Another passage that you know, I think is very interesting. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18. It says, For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And what we see is that, that that idea is throughout the Old Testament. We kind of see that idea of, you know, re, you know, you pay the guy, okay? And we see that in the New Testament as well. But what we see here is that in verse 18 at the beginning, he is clearly referencing Scripture and he's referencing at the very end this phrase, the laborer is worthy of his wages. The only, Where we see that exact phrase is actually in Luke chapter 10. If you notice in your Bibles, a lot of yours would probably have a reference to Luke chapter 10 and in verse 7. Okay, So what does that mean? It means that Luke, the gospel of Luke, was already around during the time which Paul wrote 1 Timothy. All right, and so Paul is already claiming as well that that gospel is scriptures. You know, of course, people talk about you know when Luke was written or when these gospels were written or when the epistles of Paul was written, but it does give us some here some guideline as when Paul was still alive, the gospel of Luke was around and people were reading it, and 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 Paul considered it to be scriptures. Right, and so we can look at that. And see that these things are legitimate. These same apostles, these these men who had these gifts, who were uh, called of God to do these things, they view those writings as inspired. And so, what we can see here is looking at the scriptures and looking at what uh, other people have to say is we can really build a case that nobody needed the Catholic church to determine inspiration. We did not need some type of counsel to decide, okay, well, these books are legitimate. These books are not legitimate. And what we'll also look at here in the next couple of slides is, uh, people who talk about the scriptures, who, who, who note them as legitimate, even before the Catholic church even existed. And so, before we get to that, I want to look at it. There's three councils that the Catholic Church uh, were, you know, basically uh, did. And all three were kind of major councils in which they were determining uh, canon of the Scriptures. And one thing to note is that it was not until this Council of Trent in 1546 that the canon of Scriptures was completely finalized like they they just put their hands down and said this is it this is the canon of scriptures all right so this was 1500 years after the time of christ and i don't know about you but the, taking this long to determine uh the canon it's just doesn't give me a warm fuzzy feeling it's not very reassuring here all right and it and it lends itself to the credit that these people just uh you know there was a lot of flip-flopping there was a lot of changes in, in teachings and uh really uh i believe this council of trent from what i understand was kind of like a counter-reformation if you remember this time that there was a lot of things going on uh during this time period and we see the church kind of straightening some things out okay but also one thing to note is that the council of hippo the council of carthage that were in the 390s ad was actually a different canon all right. Then the Council of Trent. So there was a different canon. And then the Council of Trent, the canon was formalized. Okay. So you know, even then, they they you know, people may talk about well, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, determined the inspiration. But even then, there were issues, and you know, it, it, taking a long time in figuring out what was canon, or at least formally declaring what was canon. Now. These books before the council, New Testament books before the council, we see uh, uh, several individuals quote these books. Irenaeus, which we've already talked about before, uh, around 180 uh, AD, he wrote this book. Uh, don't know how to pronounce that. It's basically against heresy is, is what, the, is what the, uh, the title of the book is. And he quotes from all the books of the New Testament with the exception of Philemon, Second Peter, Third John, and Jude. All right. So, what is that? That's 27 books, and so he quotes from 23 of those books. All right. And so, what that means again? These books were around. These books were considered legitimate. You know, at least what 100, 200 years before uh, the Catholic Church really became formalized. We also have Origin, and this was from Origin's homilies on Joshua it's kind of like a commentary on Joshua that was written around 240 AD and uh, this was in the middle of thought on his commentary on Joshua but notice what he says he says Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel Mark also Luke and John each gave forth a strain on their priestly trumpets Peter moreover sounds loudly on the twofold trumpet of his epistles and so also James and Jude Still, the number is incomplete, and John gives forth a trumpet sound in his epistles and apocalypse, and Luke, while describing the acts of the apostles. Lastly, however, came he who said, I think that God had set forth us apostles last of all, and thundering on the 14th trumpets of his epistles, threw down even to the ground the walls of Jericho, that is to say, all the instruments of idolatry and the doctrines of philosophers. Very interesting how he kind of ties Joshua in uh, and, and, and the, the wall is coming down on Jericho to uh, the New Testament scriptures. But if you just pay attention and notice, what he, so he quotes, he, he, he mentions the Gospels, he mentions uh, the two epistles of Peter, so this would have been 1st and 2nd Peter, he mentions James and Jude, and then uh, John in his epistles and Apocalypse, so this would have been uh, not just his Gospel, but 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation, so that would have been the Apocalypse. Then we have Luke with the Acts of the Apostles, so that's Acts. And then uh, Paul and the 14 trumpets of his epistles as well. So all all of his epistles. And so, you know, again, people know them. People knew these books were around. People are writing commentaries, mentioning these these books in the the 3rd century, talking about them a lot. Uh, And so, again, it raises the question of, you know, did did the Catholic did did the Catholic Church determine the inspiration of these books, or were they already considered inspired from the get go? Uh, we also see where uh, Eusebius, in his book Ecclesiastical History, uh, I mentioned that before. That is not an easy read, by the way, but he mentions really the entirety of the, of the New Testament. And this book was written between three twelve and three twenty four. What's interesting about this? Is he makes a distinction between the books that are basically universally recognized as legitimate, uh, some that people some reject, some accept, and then he also makes an, an, another uh, distinction on the books that are just, you know, they're they're nonsense, they're totally rejected. And I believe with his book, he he mentioned it was Second Peter, Second and Third John. Uh, Jude and James as some people didn't accept them as scriptures, but some did, all right? And so, and then the rest of them, uh, they were accepted as, as genuine. And so what we see here is, again, another case of individuals showing that these books were around. People were reading them, people were talking about them, and people uh, people were even debating, even at that time, whether or not we should include this in the canon or not. And so, again, uh, we see uh, these these scriptures uh, being considered as inspired, as written from the apostles before the Catholic Church. And so, you know, going back to this phrase that I've, that we uh, that we had seen towards the beginning of this presentation it says if you can accept the bible or any part of it as inspired word of god you can do so only because the catholic church says it is this is simply not true right now again the church the catholic church played a part in what we have today but the catholic church did not determine what was inspired now they they might have come out with a list and their little council that says okay this is it but these things were inspired before they even existed. Before even these things came to be long before the Council of Trent, long before the Council of Carthage, and the Council of Hippo. And so finally, I want to I end in, in Luke uh, 21, verse 33. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. When we look throughout those, throughout this lesson, you know, there was this. It seems as a lot of people would say. At the end of the day, uh, you know, basically, you just have to accept the Bible just on sheer faith. All right, you just have to hope that it was that it's all true. But what we see uh, with the evidence here uh, throughout time that it builds a case for something happened in the first century. People wrote wrote these letters down. And these letters were transmitted faithfully throughout the time today, all right? And so, when you think about these words that Jesus has to say, what has taken place, uh, and you think about any other book on the planet, uh, could it have been transmitted that faithfully for 2,000 years? When you even look at the Old Testament, that is going back 3,500 years uh, from the beginning of the Old Testament. You really have to start asking yourself the question there 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 just might be something to this that there was something else at play there was a higher power at play uh in, in which we were able to have these things transmitted so you know greatly uh, throughout time and we see what Jesus has to say my words are never going to pass away we're always going to have his words with us and we have his words today and um you know we and so for us today, we have to make a decision. Are we going to follow it or are we going to reject it? Are we going to be like those individuals we talked about earlier that uh, at the end of the day, you just have to discard everything. You have to say, all of this is not true. These people did not exist. It's all just false. It was some big old conspiracy. All right. That's what you have to con- conclude. And I don't know about y'all, but I, that just seems... Man, that just not seem very reasonable. You know for people that talk about we follow the science, we believe, you know we believe the evidence, we follow the evidence. Look at the evidence that we have for the New Testament that we have for the Old Testament. All right, It's unlike anything we else we have seen uh, in this world. And so uh, it's still great value to us. New Testament shows us the the only path to salvation is through uh, Jesus Christ. And so if there's anyone here today, that wants to be saved, wants to follow the uh, God and Jesus that we see in the New Testament. we certainly like to help you with those things. And uh, if you are already a Christian, all right, and if for whatever reason, you're you know, you're slipping, you're falling back into sin, uh, you need to repent of something, uh, we certainly would help you any way that we can. Uh, just um, as if you will uh, come as we stand and as we sing.